What's going on, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Just Talk podcast. I'm super excited to be back with another guest, and I did make a promise and when we hit uh, 200 episodes that I was going to completely change up how I run this podcast, and now we're, I think this might be 218 episodes, so we're 18 episodes into the kind of the, the new version of this podcast, and we've had a variety of guests on, and that was my goal. I'm a curious human by nature. Um and this person kind of came across, um, I guess, my emails and we've kind of talked in the background of kind of setting this up. Um, and this one's going to be definitely different. And it's um, something I'm very curious about because I think it's a very difficult time for a lot of people. And it tends to be a subject that I'm not going to say taboo, but it's things that people just don't talk about. It's like, uh, I'll worry about that at the end of life kind of thing. And Luke, you can kind of, I guess, talk uh, more about, I guess, what you do. But um, first, before we do that, welcome to the show, mate. And I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Adam. It's really, really great to be with you. As I've mentioned to you before, it's my first podcast, so I'm I'm quite excited, actually. I, I know I said this to Kristen, and that's obviously who we uh, were introduced um, through, and she was on a podcast a few weeks ago now, but um, I, I really enjoy, in quote, popping people's cherry when it comes to um, a, pod, a podcast, because I really enjoy that nervousness that tends to come across before we hit the record button, and then just try to do my best to just let the conversation flow as, as if two natural people just kind of sitting down having a conversation. And as I said, this is a conversation I don't think many people talk about, think about, and it's kind of like, I'll just take out this insurance and people in my family can worry about it when I'm on the other end of it kind of thing. But um, I'm sure people have probably seen in the headline. I don't know what I'm going to call it, but I guess tell more people about, I guess, who you are, what you do, and I guess the story that comes to why you started working in this field. Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a funeral celebrant, uh, which is a reasonably new thing um, for me, began last year. Um, but I've been around the end of life space for a few years now. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm really, really keen to talk about, um, you know, all aspects of, of sort of the end of life space and funeral celebrancy, particularly. Uh, and it, it just generates, I find, it, I, I just love talking about this stuff. It might sound a little bit weird to some people, but uh, I know it's not for everyone, um, but I, I really enjoy talking about it and I find a lot of meaning in it. And um, I, it's, um, I think it's really healthy and, and to be able to have this opportunity to come on with you and shine a bit more of a light on, on an area that a lot of people don't really like to think about. Um, I think um, due to a number of factors, you know, being um, fear is, I, I think, a, a big, a big thing um, there, and and just that, um, I think, probably the main driving factor, fear, probably underlies a lot of it. Fear of death, I, that's that's my inclination. That's that's sort of what I think is the at the core of people's reluctance to discuss death and uh, end of life and and dying. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's um, that's sort of what I'm here to talk about today. I, I've I've been um, just a little bit about my background. Um, this has been a relatively uh, new thing for me. As I mentioned, I've just spent eight eight years in the hospitality industry. Uh, I live in Bustleton, in uh, in WA. Um, I've worked in the wine industry as a cellar uh, door um, attendant and venue manager for the past eight years. Um, before that, I've done a, a number of different jobs, and I'm also a musician. Um, I've been a, 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 a solo acoustic musician for the last twenty years or so since I was quite young. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done a few different things, but this is, this is my vocation that I've found, um, which has given me the most meaning out of anything that I've done 
Um, and to be able to sort of move into a space where not only can I feel like I'm making a difference and bringing meaning into my life and other people's lives and bringing comfort to people, to be able to make a living off doing that is is quite a privilege. So um, as I mentioned, I just wanted to start to start with a little disclaimer um, here, and that is to say that I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert on on any of this. Um, I, as I mentioned twice already, I'm, I'm quite new at it, um, but it's... I really want to talk about it, um, but I, I'm certainly aware that there are many people in the in in the industry and in the field that know a lot more than I do. So I certainly come into it with a lot of humility, and um, hopefully I don't say anything um, that sort of overreaches um, my own sort of brief experience so far. But I'm just I'm just really pleased to have the opportunity to come and talk to you about it, mate. No, I appreciate that. And the first thing that kind of comes to mind when you said you know you've only started doing this in the last year, and I think I can candidly say this, and that you're not 21 years old, you're not young anymore. And so why, why I say that is that so many people are kind of, you know, can feel lost when they're 30 and go, well, my life's basically over here. And like, I've just got to stick it out to this job, like starting over again and kind of going into a new, you know, vocation, be it a new career or whatever. Like, it's, I can't be bothered with like, was there a driving factor for you that like, as I don't know your age, but like you, you can feel free to share, but like, was there a driving factor that was like, I wasn't finding meaning in life or you stumbled across this and you know, someone else introduced you to it. And it's like, Oh, that sounds like, I'm not going to say fun, but that sounds like a great place that I could be. And I think I could add value to like, what hmm. was that factor that kind of drew you to starting your own business or getting into the, the, the career path that it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm 43. I'm quite happy to say that on the record. Um, obviously the lighting in here is not, you know, not amazing. If I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm not looking 21, I've, I've had it all sorted out. But anyway, um, there's a number of, there's a number of reasons, um, that I got into sort of well, that, that's brought me to where I am today. Um, probably going back the first, I'd probably go back to possibly the, the death of my dad. Dad died, um, five years ago. Um, and, I guess just being around, he he had cancer and, and he had around six months from when we found out. Um, and uh, and then, so sort of being around him at that time, he was in, I'm in WA, he was in New South Wales, so I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him in that last six months. But I guess, and I was lucky enough to be somebody that hasn't lost many people in my life. I've only, to be totally honest, which blows me away a little bit before I got into you know, um, actually being a funeral celebrant, I'd only been to two funerals in my life and that was my grandmother and my father. Um, so I've been extremely lucky uh, in that sense that I hadn't had to deal with um, that sort of acute grief and loss from losing somebody um, until, you know, I was, I was in my thirties um, or late twenties, I believe it was with men. Um, so that sort of, I think that started me off. I remember and uh, that I, I probably think that was sort of the, the start of the journey um, for me when I look back and I wasn't aware of it at the time, but um, that sort of just being involved with dad in that, in that stage of him dying and then, um, and then losing him and how that sort of made me feel over the, the years, the time and the years after um, that sort of led me to that. I'd always wanted to do some volunteer work, but I never really found anything that I wanted to do particularly. I sort of thought, I guess I had a fairly limited idea of what that could entail so I sort of thought about um, you know would I want to go to a you know charity clothes store or something involved in my time or work for a community services program um, but nothing really jumped out at me and then I began um, I looked into I, 
I just noticed one day I, I saw something in the local newspaper here about our hospice program here in Bustleton. Um, and that sort of, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It took me a little while to sort of act on it, but I then um, got in contact with the hospice, asked about recruitment. How would I go about that? What does it mean? Um, you know, what do you do? All those sorts of things. And I began volunteering um, with uh, Bustleton Hospice Care Inc. Um, about close to two years ago now. Um, and that was a really fun, that brought about a really fundamental change in how I looked at things. Um, not immediately, but I think the more that I, I did it, the more it, I just realised how much, how much, uh, how rewarding I found being around people at the end of, in, at the end of lifetime and, and their families um, and just being present and being able to just offer some comfort, just someone to listen to. Um, those sorts of things. I just found that really rewarding and it sort of changed the way I was looking at my other work, working in hospitality, um, where, you know, people get upset about the smallest thing. Um, so the, the perspective change was quite fundamental. And I, I just found last year, sort of mid through, midway through last year, um, I just wasn't getting the same thing out of working as running a cellar door that I always had. I, I'm the, I love wine. I've always enjoyed that, the social aspect of, of HOSPO. Um, but I just found it, I think I burned out a little bit and it, my perspective had changed entirely. And luckily enough for me, I was in a position where I could just take a couple of months off and just have a bit of a think about things. So I, I resigned from, from work. And then in that time, I have a relative who's a, a funeral celebrant and my auntie, and she had actually, we'd spoken about it briefly at other times. Um, I'd considered marriage celebrancy as well. Uh, and then I, I spoke to her and it sort of all went from there. And she uh, was running a training course over in, in Melbourne last year. And I went over there and, and did a course with her. Um, and now I'm I'm practicing as a, as a funeral celebrant here in Bustleton. So it's um, that sort of, you know, an overview of, of, of the path, but it's, 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 yeah, I find it kind of hard to explain really. It's a very personal choice. And it's, as I mentioned before, it's not for everybody. A lot of people have, said to me, you know, why in hell would you want to do that? that that's <laughs> a question you get quite a bit, as you can imagine. Um, but it, it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of meaning to be, to be found there. And, and the, I found that all the other things that I've done before for work um, have contributed to me being able to do this as a role. So the, the hospitality side of it, being around people all the time, um, wanting people to be comfortable, um, just having that being switched on to people's moods and, um, you know, interpersonal communication and and um, nonverbal communication, all those sorts of things. I just found I, I I felt a real natural sort of. I felt like I was a bit of a natural fit when I started volunteering. Um, and so that that sort of it all just seemed to roll into one another, and then momentum picked up, and I made the choice to um, be a funeral celebrant, and and here I am. I just one little thing I just want to say there, just about my volunteering hospice. I. It's, it's basically about giving a gift of time and presence um, to people. But I am a volunteer for the program. I don't speak for the program. So in my capacity here today, I'm just speaking as a, as a, a private person, basically, that, that does volunteer for the program, but in no way speaking um, for, the, for the program itself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing that stands out most to, to me is that when you say you feel very lucky that you haven't had to you know, be to many funerals um, yourself, I'm very much the same in that, I pretty much have all my family still alive and I've, I've, I've had to go through um, the funeral and death of both my, 
my nan and pa, which is on my dad's side, and they happened rather quickly. Um, but they never, they never had to go through kind of end of life type stuff. Nan suffered um, because of Parkinson's and dementia and things like that, but she was always taken care of at home um, via my um, via my pa, and then. I jokingly say, but I'm I, there's a part, big part of me that actually truly believes it that then Pa died of a broken heart. Um, you know, he had many heart attacks throughout his life, but he was always a very fit guy. Just had a dodgy heart, but a couple of months after Nan passed away, he was just found dead in his home and um, you know, from a heart attack, never woke up kind of thing. But I'm still convinced it was of a broken heart that he died. His um, wife of 70 years basically kind of passed away and he's kind of like, I've had enough. And so out he went as well. And I only recently had my Nana, my mum's mum pass away. It was earlier this, uh, sorry, late last year. I'm trying to remember exactly when, but it was recent times um, from there. And she um, had um, very late stage kind of lung cancer. And I actually found out, I'm like, I was shocked when I heard she had lung cancer. I'm like, but Nana never smoked. And my whole family was like, Adam, she was a chain smoker since she was 18. I'm like, there's no way. Like I never saw her smoke. I never smelt it on her. And she's like, she never wanted to be around you kids, the grandkids, mm. um, to be seen as a smoker. And so she'd always go out the back and behind the garage and she'd have a couple of darts and she'd come back and, and she'd, you know, didn't you ever smell all the mint that was on her? Cause she'd be chewing, chewing gum kind of thing. And so when she was going through that late stage of cancer, I, I was lucky enough to be able to get back to Melbourne and, and see her. And it was, it was really that that kind of changed the way I look at the end of life. Because I never got to really see my nan go through kind of all of that struggle that she went through because I was much younger at the time and I didn't get to kind of see that anyway. But seeing my nana be in that kind of late stage palliative care, what stood out most to me in that, in that, as you rightly said before, I think a lot of people have fear around death in that like now when you're in your 40s or whatever it might be, middle of life kind of thing, you're like, wonder what it's going to be. When will death come? How will it come? And all those kind of thoughts that I think most people might often think about or Mm. seldom think about, but I think everyone has those thoughts. But what I did see in Nan is there was zero fear. Mm. Now, whether she was fearful or not, I can't tell because I couldn't tell from the outside in and trying to just have conversations with her. The conversations revolved around how happy she was in life with, the grandkids and seeing like it, it all revolved around her life. And mm. I always try and I guess have those conversations when people, you know, if someone has, you know, beat a client or someone I know who had to go to a funeral, I always ask the question, was the funeral celebration of their life or was it more about, you know, focusing on the day being of the death and understandable that you're going to be focusing on, well, the fact I've just lost this, you know, important person in my life, but I love the fact that people who are end stage tend to focus on life rather than death. And so I just kind of wanted to set all that up to kind of ask the question, like when families are coming to you, are they normally kind of requesting that we want to have some sort of celebration or is it more just make this day kind of tangible enough for the family to get through? Like where do you kind of see most people who are having to be there for the funeral of that um, loved one? Where are their mindsets usually at? It's very diverse um, and it, it depends entirely on, on the circumstances, on the, on the person, on the family dynamics, uh, in the manner of death, 
Um, there's so many different moving parts there. So you really don't know sort of what you might be, you know, what sort of, um, what sort of mood, what sort of dynamic you're walking into when you have that first meeting or that first conversation with a family. So it is very important to always go into it with a very open mind and be prepared for anything you sort of, you know, you could have, um, I guess it, it tends to be, um, I've seen more, more, um, just trying to think of a good way to say this. I, people do want to often celebrate the life. It depends on the age of the person too, to a degree as well. So whether, and it's, you know, we've got this idea that if somebody's lived a long life, they've had a good innings, you know, and it, and it, um, and that, you know, it had to happen sooner or later, those sort of attitudes. And that's true to a point, but even, uh, even then, you know, they're always, as, as I was taught in training, you know, they're always somebody's husband, father, wife, daughter, so, you know, the, for the people that have lost that person, just because they're older doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be more accepting of it. Um, but I, I guess you, you try to make it a, an honouring and a celebration of somebody's life. Um, and that's what you, you strive for. But it, it's, a, it's a really difficult time for people. So the, just the, the amount, it's, it's really important to have compassion um, and to take it seriously and to not judge anybody over their reactions because it's often people are in a high emotional state obviously so they're not often they're not they're not at their best often so you've got to really give people a lot of space um, for that and that's something I've found that I sort of gravitate to I haven't found it difficult to do that it, it can be challenging but uh, hasn't been a, a difficult thing so um, but yeah, as I just to circle back to the start, what I said at the start, it really is different every time you walk in and it depends how many, you know, often large families, small families, some are very, very somber and very sad and, and some, some quite lonely if there's only a few people there. Some are huge celebrations of, of that person's life, even in a circumstance where they may have died suddenly. Um, and then you really see the impact that they've had on everyone around them. And it's, it can be a really uplifting and joyous thing to be a part of. And it's a real honour. Um, to be included in that so yeah it's a very it's very different every time it's never going to be a boring job I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll absolutely attest to that I intend to do this probably you know as long as I can now that I've started and I don't foresee a day where I'm going to be thinking wow this you know oh, another another one of these uh, you know because it's going to be challenging and different every time so that's part of the beauty of it I guess just on that I mean let's just say I've, I've just had the passing of, you know, one of my relatives. How does the process kind of play out? Just so one, I, I mean, I don't want to start planning my, my parents' funerals just yet in my head. That's certainly not where I'm going, but like, I guess I think a lot of fear maybe come from uncertainty. Like how is mm. this going to play? Like, what do I do? I don't even think like, I can't even think that I'd be in the right frame of mind to kind of be able to plan these kinds mm. of things, but how does that play out? Like, does, do I make a phone call and say, hey, Luke, I'd like to come in and talk to you about this or do people walk in? Like, how does that kind of play out? And like, what does the next, I mean, if it's been a relatively, I say, normal death, I presume there's a, a fairly standard timeline of we mm. have this meeting and then the funeral is booked for five days time, for, like whatever that. So what does day one to kind of, I guess, funeral day kind of look like? Yeah, sure. I think that's really useful to go because that's often people you know, if they're lucky, they don't have to go through this very often in their life. So, and even if they've lost somebody, they're 
you know, that the odds that they're going to have to organise the funeral themselves is is quite low unless it's a parent or, or child. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that's that's really useful. So generally, it, it, arrangements are a little bit different state to state, but it's the first step for, for families is generally to contact the funeral home or the funeral director. Um, that's the first point of call. So celebrants generally operate as independent um, sole traders. So we will, the, the, the funeral directors will have a list of celebrants that they use um, and they will sort of make a bit of a judgment in my experience um, that they'll, they'll sort of try and pair the family or the circumstances to the right celebrant. I'll do their best to do that. Uh, and depending on what the family has asked for as well. Um, so they might want, you know, they might want to, uh, it might be based on gender. It might be they want, might want a woman or a man. Um, they might want somebody that has a particular quality or has a particular um, slant on things. Um, and so that that's the first call. I generally get contacted by the, the funeral director first. So I haven't been contacted directly by a, a family yet before they've gone um, to the funeral directors. But as I mentioned, I'm relatively new to the industry. So that will, um, uh, you know, hopefully as, as I build more of a profile, I might find that that happens, that people know who I am a bit more and request me first or that, you know, that they go to the funeral director asking for me, um, um, which would be uh, lovely. But at the moment, it's, yeah, that the, the funeral director will contact me, um, give me some details about the family, advise me what's happened with, with the person um, who's passed um, and then put me in contact with them. I'll make a phone call to the family, um, have a quick chat on the phone and just set up a time to meet. And then you go and, and meet with whoever in the family wants to contribute to the funeral um, and sit for a couple of hours with them, take, take notes down, find out about the person um, that's passed, about their loved one. And then because just and also just to expand that into what we actually do is so often we write the eulogies a lot of the time as well so that's definitely a big part of the job is writing um so it's uh, some families will want to deliver the eulogy themselves write it themselves and and deliver it themselves and that's absolutely fine to, to do that's really lovely if someone in the family is capable of doing that if they're going to do that um, I might ask if they'd like some, you know, a little bit to some feedback on it or if they need any help with it um, and give them some practical tips on writing um, and capturing the character of the person rather than making it just a, you know, they were born on this date, they lived at this house, they went to this school, that's a, which often is what you find sort of people because they're not quite sure how to go about it. But really a eulogy is about capturing the character of the person and sort of bringing them back to life for a little while on the day, mm. um, which is a really important part of it. Um, so, yeah, and that that first meeting with the family can be very, you know, I've had some very different experiences. Some of them are joyous and everyone's laughing and crying at the same time and remembering things. And some are very sombre and sad, depending on the circumstances. Um, so then from there, um, and then in the meantime, this is sort of people often don't really know what celebrants do exactly and get us sort of mixed up with the funeral director or the, or the, or the funeral home. Um, so we basically, you know, we deliver the ceremony, but the funeral directors are in charge of everything else and they're ultimately responsible for the entire, um, the entire delivery of the funeral itself. So my work reflects on them. Um, so I take that very seriously in, in that, you know, it's not just me that's reflecting on if I was to do a substandard job, um, it's, it's actually the funeral directors as well. So and they're very aware of that. So they're you know, when you start out in the industry, it might take it might take a little while to get a get off at a funeral because they don't really know know mm. you. Um, and it's a trust, it's a trust issue there. So, 
Um, but then from there, once I've met with the family, taken all the notes, I'll write the funeral up, draft it, send it to them for you know any other questions I have or proofing and drafting and often go back and forth a, a bit between then and the funeral until they're, they're 100% happy. They get to view it, the whole thing. So eulogy and the, and the whole service, there's a bit of a format to writing a funeral if you're going to do it properly. Um, and they'll look at, I'll send it the whole thing and then they sign off on it and say, yeah, we're really, we're really happy with that. Thank you. And um, then on the day, that's, that's um, I'll liaise with anyone that's speaking. Um, if I haven't met them first before the funeral and just give them a few little tips about how to do things and um, then, yeah, deliver, deliver the funeral in, in tandem with the, with the funeral directors. And yeah, I mean, as soon as you said this, um, when we started today that, you know, you're a celebrant, uh, like my first mind went straight to marriage celebrant. And so mm. yep. I, I've gathered since I've been married uh, with marriage celebracy that, um, that there's a certain amount of words that you have to use to make it a lawful marriage. Like they, they've got certain things that they have to say. Everything else is kind of up to that celebrant. And I guess that's why you kind of, pick a certain celebrant over someone else because oh, as you said they've got different maybe demeanors different kind of personalities and some people like really uplifting bubbly fun ones other people like no very strict and just stick to the letter of the law you know kind of things and so is that similar I guess in your line of work do you have to say certain things to kind of make this an official funeral kind of end of life death certificate type thing or is there is it completely up to you how you kind of want to say there's no lawful words or phrases you have to say yeah that's a, a really important thing to discuss actually so it's a a funeral is an extra legal um ceremony so you're not changing anybody's legal status by conducting a funeral so in order to be a funeral celebrant the question i often get is what training do you have to do for that so in order to be a marriage or a civil celebrant that can perform marriages uh, and other ceremonies where you're actually, um, you know, changing somebody's legal status, you've got to do a full civil solvency course, which can be six to 12 months to do that. Um, I didn't do that because I don't want to do weddings. Uh, I mm -hmm. purely want to be a funeral celebrant. So I, the training I did was uh, not, as, not as long and involved in that because a lot of that course to be a civil celebrant is quite dry. It's a lot of legislation. Um, all that sort of stuff that you've got to do because it is, you know, it's a lot of paperwork involved with it. Um, so what I do in terms of the admin side of things, being a funeral celebrant is a lot less, uh, a lot less arduous than being a, a full civil celebrant that does, does marriages. I have no desire to do weddings because I've seen enough weddings in my time as a musician and a, and a venue manager and been a functions manager before as well. So, um, and they're lovely to be part of, but that's not, that's just not my focus or that's not where I'm finding meaning at this time in my life. So mm. Um, so just a little bit, uh, just a, a little brief history of celebrancy in Australia, because I didn't realise a lot of this stuff until I started training. Um, it's a, it's we we basically pioneered civil celebrancy in Australia um, for the whole world. So we are us and, and New Zealand, I believe now, are sort of dominate. We're, we're the two countries where it, it, it dominates the most. We've got a very large share of the market in terms of um, in terms of weddings and funerals, whereas other countries are you know they're strictly done in churches or there's the state is actually a lot more involved in it you have to go to the registry office there's a certain form of things that you have to do um so it, it began civil celebrancy began in australia in the 70s under the whitlam government um with lionel murphy the attorney general basically signed into law uh, legislation allowing people to become civil celebrants uh and that basically opened up the field for people to be able to make their own choice of who who marries them who who buries them who 
does all the, those extra things that that you would formally have to get either at the clergy or the state directly um, to do. So it's a very, you know, we sort of fill a gap there that that's um, that's not usual for the rest of the world. So it's it's quite interesting that um, I find that that Australia sort of led the way with that. And and Daly Messenger the third, who was probably the, the big pioneer of of celebrancy in Australia. Um, he he was the one that sort of he worked in in concert with Lionel Murphy, consulted with him at the time, and was fairly fundamental in bringing the whole field into being here. Um, so it is a distinct thing from being um, you know from being a funeral director or working uh, in other ways in in the field. Being a celebrant is a, a very separate thing. But funeral celebrancy, you don't have to do you you could theoretically do no training and work and turn up to a funeral director and say, hey, I want to do some funerals. That's not going to happen, though. If you do that, you know they're not going to ever give you work. They they certainly will want to see that you've put some time and effort into um, thinking about that you want to do this, whether you've got the expertise to do it. So in my case, I think the fact that I had been a hospice volunteer already, um, and also my sort of performance background with with playing music and also the hospitality, I think those things all helped um, sort of in, with confidence for for me getting my start um, in the industry, but. Yeah, I, I, luckily enough, I did consider doing the full civil celebrancy course, but it, it, I just sort of, at the end of it, I sort of thought, I don't, I can't see a time when I'm, I had a lot of advice, people telling me, you might want to do weddings, you know, go and do it because then you'll do it. But I, they probably don't have my experience of knowing that I've been to hundreds and hundreds of weddings in other capacities. And I just, I've, I've, I don't have any desire to, to do that. So yeah, it is a very distinct field being so as a funeral celebrant, I'm quite unusual in just being a funeral celebrant. Most celebrants, civil celebrants will do anything. We'll do weddings and primarily weddings um, is, is my experience. Most celebrants that I've known through the industry are primarily wedding celebrants. That's their main gig. Um, so yeah, me doing this is, is I'm a little bit different um, in doing that. I'm also quite distinct in not distinct, but it's mostly dominated by women too. There's more, many more women celebrants in general uh -huh. than men. Um, and especially in the funeral side of things, I'm one of probably only two or three in the whole Southwest of WA that, that conduct um, uh, funerals ex exclusively, especially. Um, I might be wrong about that. If anyone hears this and, <laughs> and says, hey, I'm, I exist over here too, that'd be great because it's real. I always enjoy talking to people that, that are working in the field as well. Um, but yeah, that's a little rundown on where it all came from and sort of how, how that works. Why do you think Australia and New Zealand were so forward pushing on that? I mean, is it, I mean, as again, when kind of, I guess most people think about um, weddings, when you see them, I guess, on movies and things like that, as I said, it, it tends to always be in churches and things like that. Is, mm. is that, I mean, are celebrants used anywhere else in the world at all? Or is it like becoming more popular and I, again my mind i'm an entrepreneur through and through and so my mind goes well if it's so popular here maybe there's markets that haven't been mm -hmm. touched and you could really explode this kind of profession in europe and in, into them but then my mind goes well they tend to be much more religious kind of parts of the world so maybe mm -hmm. no they're going to be much more strict and no i want the church and i want them kind of you know presiding over my weddings and my funerals and things like that. And so maybe it's not so the case, but is, is it becoming a more widely accepted kind of, I guess, profession elsewhere in the world then? 
I don't have the exact stats, but I think it is in, in other countries, but it's certainly not as dominant as it is in in the in um, the in Australia and New Zealand. I know I've done did a little bit of research on this just before coming on just to to check my facts on that, but there is definitely it does exist in other countries, but it certainly doesn't have the sort of the, the market share, I guess, um, that it does um, in our countries. And I think culturally, I, I, I suspect that had a fair bit to do with it, but I think it was probably the advocacy um, and the activism of probably a few people really that sort of started it all off. Um, and then it, it got legs with us in Australia, I suspect because we're culturally um, that liking to to get away from the state sort of having to to have something to do with it's a bit stuffy really i guess it is i can imagine a lot of people were um quite frustrated with having to either go to a church or go to a registry to get married and then have be told that there's a certain formula to do it and you can only do it this way mm. uh, i think there's a um you know i can't generalize but the australian spirit of being a little bit more resistant to authority to a degree um, I suspect that had a little bit to do with it. Um, but I, I, I would say it's probably down to a, a number of individuals that pushed for it to happen. And then it, it sort of found its feet in our culture here more so than in other parts of the world, because we're not quite as religiously dogmatic as some other countries and for starters and, and all, or have different structures in how we look at, um, look at the government and being involved in our life in, in certain areas. So, yeah. You, you said you're, you're like, most celebrants are kind of like contractors for a, a funeral home or a funeral director. Mm. Do, does that mean most directors who maybe own an actual business where, as I said, the funeral is then conducted at and that whole kind of service there, do most of them come from a place where you starting out now and then go, you know what, I love this part of it, but I'd love to be even more involved. And then you go and start an actual funeral home and then you kind of got the whole service under one hat is that kind of how it plays out or is that where your brain is moving towards the future or you've got no desire to do that whatsoever you just want to be this part of it where where, where does your future in this i guess kind of play out at yeah it's um i i certainly i'm absolutely not an expert in the, in the industry in general but i i just to uh, the the funeral industry in australia is like a lot of industries there's one big player in the market that owns about 50% roughly, I think from memory, um, that own a lot of different businesses around the country. Um, so it's more of a corporate sort of structure for what they do. And the rest of the market is family-owned businesses, um, smaller individual businesses as well. There is generally a strong tradition of families, you know, running funeral homes, being funeral directors. Um, and that's certainly the case here in the Southwest with the, the funeral directors that I work with down here. Um, and I think that's I that appeals to me that that sort of being a family-owned business they're they're generations back of 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 running it their their hearts in the right place with it I think if it's purely a money-making operation I'm, I'm not saying that the corporates that that's all it's about but it's certainly a big part of what they do um, I think that lends itself to probably creating an environment where you're not it's it's not about the the incentives and the priorities aren't probably where they should be all the time I think um so for me, going forward with it, I don't have any, I'm interested, I'm really curious about the entire industry. So I want to spend more and more time involved in it. But the celebrancy side of it for me is particularly where I, I would like to stick as my main role um, because of the, it just, it just fits with me, um, conducting the funerals, meeting with the families, doing those things. 
um, it, it really it really appeals to me. I'm really enjoying it, and and which is a, you know can be a slightly odd thing to say um, uh, when you're thinking about funerals or end of life, but it is. I just get it's so rewarding and and humbling and uh, yeah. So I, I certainly want to sort of there's there's a lot of different um, facets to to the industry or to the to the space. I think, and I'm really keen to explore some of that. Whether it be through um, uh, through the hospice as well, and, and that and that program, and 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 being a celebrant, um, and whether it be just coming and doing more things like this, talking to people, um, you know, and shining a bit of a light on it. And my belief personally is that it. I think acceptance of, the, of this is sort of a, a line that I've come up with. I probably cannibalised from lots of different spaces. Probably been said better elsewhere, but I think acceptance of the transient nature of our existence here can help us to live better lives now. Uh, so that's, I think that's really important and, and something that I believe passionately in. So that I've sort of found my cause in a, in a way there. I've, I've always been somebody kind of looking for a cause. So that that's, that's, um, that's the one that I've landed on and, and it just feels like a completely right fit to me. So I'm just really looking forward to spending more and more time in the space and, um, and being able to 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 be of service um, mm. people because that's really the main the main part of it is being of service to people. That's where I'm at. So something that just popped into my mind, and please tell me if I'm asking far too personal of a question here, but I guess spending more time around death. Um, I I've never been a very religious person. It's just not something that uh, kind of sits well with me or whatnot. But that's not to say I don't believe something exists in the next life. And as I get older and as I kind of have to experience more death, there's this weird thing that has come over me now as I do get older that I don't know if it's a sense of hope that, you know, when we die that I am going to get to meet my, my family members again in whatever that afterlife is or however that kind of plays out. But for you, like, have you had a transition and kind of how you, I guess, perceive the afterlife having now been around it a little bit more and kind of, I guess, doing your own research into it and things like that. Has that kind of changed for you? Kind of where, where do your kind of thoughts, I guess, lay within that kind of field of it all? Yeah, I think that's, it's, um, it's a, it is a personal question, but it's probably the most important question you can ask somebody, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, I, um, my background, I was raised in a, a, I went to a Catholic primary school. Uh, my family were Catholic, but not, heavily dad you know it was from dad's side of the family um uh, my nan was was very devout um parts of our family are but my dad wasn't really so we went to school but we didn't generally go to mass um as a family except at easter and christmas and, and that sort of thing so um and then uh, when i became a, a teenager and 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 thought put more thought into things than that I, i'm i'm an atheist now um and and have been since i was a teenager but that I think sometimes people have the wrong idea about atheism in that they think it means that you don't believe anything. But if you flip, it's not that you don't believe anything. It's just that you, it's about not actually ascribing belief to something without proof, I, I guess, in a way. So I'm very open to, to other people's ideas about this stuff and, and very approach it with a much more of an open mind than I did when I was younger. Uh, and it's really important now that I certainly would never want my own personal beliefs to get in the way of, of being able to offer a, a good service to somebody that's passed or, or being a, affecting the way I interact with their family. 
Um, so very much open mind about this. And in terms of what I think um, happens in the next world, I, I sort of just believe in the beautiful mystery of it all. I don't think there's any way we can know. Um, and I'm at peace with that. I think that, and that, I think that belief really changed me when I sort of came to it in my sort of mid-20s, I think it was. It was before my nan died even. Um, but I sort of identify that as a real change of mind um, that sort of, that's probably where I, you know, that's probably the start of the path that's led me to doing this now. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated to talk about it, but I I'd certainly... I, I just, but as I as I said, I believe in the mystery of it. That's mm. that's really it. And I think there's no need to try and quantify something that we really can't. In my, that's my belief. So, and I just feel like that's a real burden, not having to worry about it. Um, you know what happens when you die. I just, I guess, I I think a lot of people from a religious background, I guess, religion often will. It's it's very much focused on what happens after you die and how that translates into into this world and i'd sort of feel like it's the chicken before the egg there i think you're sort of you're thinking too much about what happens after you die you're not really putting you know witnessing and experience life as you should be now um i don't know if i'm explaining that very well but that it's it's uh i, I think that those that belief of mine about just believing in the mystery of it is really fundamentally my in how i do how i go about um my celebrancy and and how I am um, when I'm speaking to people um, who are who are dying or their families and and those sorts of things. And uh, the the it's very humbling in the gratitude you get from people in that space from um, just how amazingly focused on the on important things many people are when they're dying and their families become as well because it just sort of cuts out all of the exterior clatter you know the just the the noise basically people's focus on as you mentioned um with your nan um when she was passing and um being sort of almost joyous and grateful for everything you see that a lot um that's that's definitely and that's that's one of the most beautiful things you can see in somebody i think when they're sort of acceptance of of that they they're not going to be here forever so they've they've figured out what's important you know i want to my family the people i love um making a positive contribution to other people's lives um that is i, I just want to be around that more and more that is mm. such an amazing place to be around um that you know and then uh, to my previous example you know standing across a you know a bar from somebody in a cellar door and having them critique a wine or uh, you know that sort of thing it you, you sort of you put those things together and think well i know sort of where what i'd rather be talking about day to day um and that sort of yeah that i hope that answers that that question um, yeah absolutely it's 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 an interesting kind of, I, I always i've become more curious about that kind of question in like where do people's heads lie? And I, I, I don't know why, because I always do tend to, when I'm talking to clients and I've, I've used this phrase over and over and over again in that, you know, stop worrying about things that are out of your control. Like there's no point in kind of putting too much energy or worry into those, whether it's just, I don't know, a, a parent at a school or something that seems to be doing things that you don't agree with or whatever it might be to what happens in the afterlife these things you just you can't control so why kind of put so much energy and effort into it when as i said just enjoy the now enjoy what's around you enjoy kind of what's going on and the fact that you brought it up as well that you want to be around that kind of 
energy in that, you know, you, you see that kind of acceptance, you see that um, kind of just joy of life and kind of, I guess, going back over, oh, I've, I've really loved this in life. I loved seeing this and doing this. And, you know, I, I always say, try and be around people that kind of bring energy to your life and bring happiness, bring balance and bring joy and those kinds of things. Don't try and surround yourself with people who are always negative and thinking about the, mm. the dooms and glooms kind of um, life. And it, I wanted to say this before I kind of forgot about it and I, I kind of asked the question so I could say this, but I remember a comedian kind of said, um, I can't remember who it was and I wish I could at the moment, but he, he, he was talking about in his act about the afterlife and he had a really funny take on it. But I remember listening to it and I thought it was a very profound moment on what could potentially happen in the afterlife. And while, I, as I said, I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife or whatever it might be, I do have these kind of core fundamentals of kind of Buddhism in that what you mm. put into the world, you get back karma in, out, and the passing over of a soul maybe. And mm. that kind of all encapsulated in this moment with this particular comedian is like, imagine everyone always seems to talk about if they have this kind of near death experience where they see this light that they seem to be floating towards kind of thing. And if they happen to come back into the world, they're kind of sucked away from that light. And mm. his funny take on it was, what happens if the afterlife, you're seeing this one golden little um, light, is that what happens if your soul is passing into the baby who is currently being born and is going through the vaginal canal and coming into the light kind of thing. And the, as I said, I haven't done it as well as he did. He had this whole act around it kind of thing. And he was acting out this baby coming through the vaginal canal and all these kind of, it's just, it was hilarious kind of thing. But I remember hearing him say that. And my thought as said, like whether our souls pass on to the next kind of generation or whatever it might be, that was a really profound moment for me. We kind of, it, for whatever reason kind of sat with me and again i don't think too much about it i'm not sitting there every night going i wonder if that light is you know kind of whatnot but i don't know i think it's that search that most humans have that we we don't like the uncertainty we don't like this kind of we need to kind of always know kind of thing and i think that's the same with all of us but um i, I think you beautifully put it today as you said that you know being around I'm going to say the elderly because more often than not, it's the elderly who are passing on. And obviously mm. young people do pass away um, by however many um, ways that they can pass on. But I was very lucky um, to have my first job was um, delivering prescription medicine to a retirement village. Um, so instead of having the paper boy route delivering papers, I actually delivered prescription medicine to a um, retirement village from a chemist Um and I got to spend, I did it for two or three years from age of like 13, 14 until like 15, 16 kind of thing. Um, mm. And I got to spend a huge amount of time with the elderly because most of them were obviously in a retirement village because they're old and um, they were sick and unwell. And I just love being around old people and mm. they've got stories to tell. They've got views on the world that are very different to people of my age or younger. And um, I guess I say all this because you said it as well, that if you can spend your time with within a hospice, whether that's an end of life kind of palliative care around the elderly or whether you just want to go and um, donate your time in a retirement village or a, a nursing home, I think there's so much you can learn from people who have been on this planet for 80, 90, 100 years. 
Um, whether that's end of life or whether that's just them enjoying their life in retirement, I, I think it's a beautiful place to kind of be not only for value for yourself, but value for them as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I think what you do um, is an incredible job and I'm, I'm glad I reached out to you and, you know, we did kind of set this up because um, as I said, I, I just have had more death in my life kind of as I age and it's been something that I'm curious about. And I think the way that you've spoken about it today just shines a different light on it rather than this having to be this just, we just got to get through this. Let's just do this. Let's put this person on and they can just kind of hurry up with this service because I don't want to kind of think about it. Yeah. I think the way you talk about it, it, it can be something that you're not necessarily going to look forward to, but something that you can kind of find some joy in at a, a time where I think most people are going to be feeling pretty sad about it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's really um, to to be it's a, it's as i mentioned before it's a privilege and an honor it's it's something we you know you hear thrown around about things a lot but it really is an absolute privilege to to be you know part of people's lives at that time and to be able to offer comfort to people comfort's probably the key word i think in that's if there was one word to describe what i do that's probably the key word you you're trying to give comfort to people at one of the can be one of the most difficult dark times in their life, whether it be them passing or a, a relative or, or loved one passing. Uh, so it really is uh, just a, a, an astounding thing to be to be part of. And I'm every I'm reminded of every every single funeral, every conversation I have, I'm reminded of that every single time. And that's just such a, a an amazing place to be looking at the world from when you've you've got those feelings of of gratitude and. Um, and people saying to me, you know, I'll, you know, I'll go and do work in the hospice and they'll say, you're, you're amazing. You know, and I'm thinking you guys are, are about to lose somebody and yet you're all here. You're, you're, you know, swapping stories and, and being really strong for each other. I'm just making some cups of tea and having a chat with people when I'm doing, when I'm, when I'm volunteering a lot of the time. Um, that's a big part of the role. Um, and I, but it, you just to be around people that are grateful, that are focused on, on what's really important and what matters um and it's it's you know not to sound cliche but it, it's love at the end of the day it's you're around being around love real you know people's real love for one another it's just such an amazing place to be and and the world can be really uncertain and really dark in lots of ways and troubling and and scary so to be surrounded by this um every day i am really i i just really feel like i found my place um, so, and being what you mentioned about being around older people as well, I, I think there's, it's such a shame in a lot of ways. I mean, look at the state of the aged care system in our country. Um, we sort of shuffle them off into the dark a lot of the time. And it's instead of, they've got so many things to share, um, with us and, and that perspective of being closer to the end a lot of the time as well, you, you really brings out some, um, some amazing qualities and amazing advice and wisdom from people so it's a shame that we we don't sort of we haven't integrated the elderly more into our society as active parts of the society um and really tap into them for what they can offer us i think so um and i guess to the flip side of this is not not to it, it, it's really it's a really difficult time for people um much of the time and and people some people don't have that emotional sort of core to draw on with it. So they might be having other other problems in their life at the time and then they're losing a loved one as well or they get a bad diagnosis for themselves and 
um, it can be really challenging and, and really difficult, but all, you know, it, it, to be able to offer some comfort to those people, their families, and that if you can just do a little bit, if, you, if there's, I sort of look at it and think, if I can just offer that five minute conversation, even to let them get something off their chest or just make them feel a little bit better, validating people's feelings as well is really important. And that's a big part of the funeral is words of comfort. That's a term we use. Um, for it is validating how people feel, acknowledging that it's really difficult and really hard for them rather than it be, you can't sort of, you've got to sort of thread the needle a bit of it being a combination of celebration and honouring and also a, a sad time of saying goodbye as well. So it's, it's, it can be quite delicate to try and get that balance right. Um, so it's, it's, it's challenging in, in all the best ways. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a really amazing experience that i've had so far it's really great to come and talk about it and share it with you and, it, and even while i'm discussing it with you i'm sort of it's i'm formulating different thoughts about it in in my mind i really enjoy just thinking more about it and that it's changed my my personal relationships in my life as well with with my my loved ones my kids um my partner my my family um and my friends everything you know i sort of it's changed the whole i feel like i'm a sort of you're always a different person one day to the next to, to in a to a degree but i feel like i'm very much a different person than i was before i started being around this this area um one last question that really comes to mind that i'd like i'd like to ask is has there been a funeral um or like a, a someone come to you asking you know you you to kind of preside over their funeral that it, it got too much for you or it was like that really hit a particular nerve or kind of emotion with you as like, I don't think I can do the best job for you because that's too close to home or my God, I don't think I could do it because I don't think I could get through the ceremony. Like, has there been an episode like that for you or have you heard of you know, other celebrants that you've now spoken to and it, that they couldn't, they had to say no? Like, do you ever say mm. no to a kind of presiding over one? I haven't, but I know that it, it, it does happen to people and I, I presume that it will happen at some point um, with me. Um, compartmentalising sort of different roles in your life from a psychological standpoint is a really important skill um, to doing this. You, you sort of, you know, we all have different, different roles um, in our lives. And so when I'm, when I'm in my sort of funeral celebrancy mode, I'm quite different to when I'm with a couple of mates at, at the pub having a beer or talking to my girlfriend or, or hanging out with my kids. Um, but I haven't had that happen, but it, it obviously, um, you know, you've got to be really aware of your own, you know, your own sort of emotional and mental state and the things that, that you might find difficult um, and factor that into when you're speaking to somebody. So, and you'd want to tell a family pretty, you know, first conversation or, uh, you know, as soon as you could, if you felt like you, you weren't able to do it. I haven't, I, I don't anticipate that will be something that happens often with me. I think just I, I've found it quite, you know, not easy, but I've, I've sort of felt it's been pretty seamless being able to step in and out of, of the role. Um, and also practicing your own self-care is a really important part of it as, as well. I go, to, I've got, I go to a psychologist once, once every now and again, just to have a chat and take the pulse basically. And I think I very much encourage everybody, especially men, um, to go to, you know, go to therapy, go to a counsellor, go to whoever, even if it's just a friend, um, talk about emotional stuff, you know, really get it out there. If you can't do that and be emotionally honest with yourself, then you certainly cannot be in a place where you can be of service to others in this sort of capacity um, at all. So 
I've been, I've always been a bit of an open book emotionally. Um, and I've become more so now because I just think it's the healthiest way to be. Um, so that's really important. Um, and I think as long as you maintain that, look after yourself first, because you can't really offer people any more of yourself than what you're able to give, um, then hopefully I, I can, I won't be in a position where I, I feel like I can't do something. If I was really, you know, obviously if something pops up in my life that's really difficult to deal with, um, then I would probably look at, you know, taking a bit of a sabbatical or, or stepping out of it um, or just, yeah, taking taking myself off the schedule for a little bit until I felt like I was back able to, to do it again. But not so far. So that's, um, but it does certainly happen. I do know I've talked to other celebrants and, and they've told me stories, um, all sorts of interesting stories about some of the things you come across um, doing this for a role, some hair raising stuff, some interesting things. And you're dealing with people from all walks of life. And um, obviously there are certain situations that are going to be a lot more difficult, you know, children, um, suicide. Um, these things are, they're always going to be really difficult to deal with. Um, but if anything, I, I guess it's, they still need somebody to do the funeral service for them. So if you can, if you can do that, um, then you're still being of service. It's, um, you know, that's a pretty special thing that you're able to do for somebody and it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to offer that to people, offer that comfort to people. Really well said, mate. And I, I think that, um, kind of, yeah, finishes off what we're speaking about today. And I think that's, a, I think, again, a beautiful note and I guess a testament to, I guess, your personality and kind of, I think you are really suited for the job that you do because I think you've said everything really well there today. And especially that last point of kind of really taking care of yourself so you can do this job and give yourself wholly over to it, um, to that person that's coming to you at that difficult time. But I think that's a message that I think can go with anyone um, in life that, you know, you you might be the, CEO at your job, you might be the teacher at your job, but you know, that doesn't have to be just the only version of you. Obviously there's versions of you outside of that job and you don't have to just um, say that that's all you are, that, you know, there's other parts. And I think compartmentalizing it, as you said, and kind of, as soon as you leave that office space, I'm now home version. I'm now father mm. version. I'm now best friend version, whatever that might be. And um, I think therapy, as you said, um, it's something I've been thinking more of. I'm certainly I don't go to therapy. That's something, as you said, just to have an outside voice, whether that's a best mate that you feel completely trusting in that you can go to and say, I just need to dump some things on you at the moment. And I just need to have you here to listen to it um, about it or whether that's a professional, whatever that might be for you. I think, especially as you said, for men, because none of us talk about our feelings and we don't kind of get out there and kind of lay that out. And Again, the, the statistics in Australia, I don't know around the world, but how many men are committing suicide in comparison to women? It's it's new, many times multiples over. Um, and so, yeah, if we can kind of talk more about men's health and kind of get men healthy, but for anyone in life, I think it's a good thing. So, no, I appreciate you, as I said, opening up and talking about it, as I said, a topic um, and us being able to go in different directions with that topic today. Hopefully it's given some, um, I guess, as I said, some, some light about what this uh, industry is and kind of when people might have to go or not might, when they have to go through this, mm. um, that it's, it's an easier process. And so I appreciate your time for that, mate. No, thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been really um, another privilege to come on and talk to you uh, about it. And hopefully people have uh, might've just demystified a little bit of it. Um, for people, I'm certainly not going to, as I mentioned, I'm not an expert by any means, but hopefully just listening to somebody talk about it that's involved in it has maybe answered a few questions people might have. I'm better if they've been lucky enough to not have to, to deal um, in the end of life space yet. 
Um, and yeah, that sort of dispelling a little bit of that fear as well. Um, that's, that's what I, uh, that's such an important part of it. There's, there's a real, there's a real aspect of beauty, um, involved in, in the space and, and in death and dying. Um, so, and if people could see a bit more of that and, and I think that would dispel a bit of their fear of it. Um, and then if you can, if I can be part of sort of just opening up people's awareness a little bit more to that, then. I think that's um that's a, a really a great thing and I, I just as i said i find it also so very rewarding um so yeah thanks so much for having me today at all um before we kind of get into our last bit um which i always like to finish off on um, the podcast on just see if people are in um i guess the southwest um i presume you don't travel too much for it i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i mean you probably keep a, a, a pretty small circle or kind of where you preside over. But I mean, if people want to get a hold of you to talk more about this, if you are open to that, or they want to kind of reach out to you because they have had a death in the family and they kind of, oh, this sounds great. I'd love to kind of talk to this guy more. How do, I mean, I'll put it in the show notes as I always say, but just for you to verbally say it, where, how do people kind of get a hold of you or what's the best way to yeah. kind of uh, reach out? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm um, I'm on Facebook, um, Luke O'Connell Funeral Celebrant. Um, if you just look that up, um, I do generally just do local funerals because you have to meet with families in person. It really isn't practical to have to you know drive too far, and um, it, so it, it it's you know within an hour or two of of here. Um, also, I do have a website it's under construction at the moment because I it's most of my contact comes through phone calls pretty much, and then through the through the funeral directors that I work with. Yeah, but I'm always interested to to talk about this stuff, and if any people want a referral to to somewhere to um, deal with anything that's happening within the end of life space, I might be able to help sort of point them in the right direction um, to find things. So yeah, lukeoconnell.com.au, um, and yeah, and I'll definitely happy for you to pop those those details in the show notes and as well. Could I pop, could I make a little shout out here to um for a couple of charitable foundations? Adam? Of course, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So just a couple of causes that I'm um, aligned with in, in one way or another. So um, here we have the, the Ivy Barclay Foundation and they're a foundation that helps families deal with the the unexpected loss of a child. Um, and also the Sarah Jane Foundation, which uh, is a foundation that uh, assists people in with costs of, of paying for the funerals for children that have died um, from SIDS um, or suddenly when, when very young as well. And I'll give you those details to pop in the show notes too if people would like to know more about those causes or, or donate. Um, they're really worthy causes. Um, just on that, I, I don't know why I didn't ask it earlier. Sorry, just briefly what's the kind of cost of a standard kind of funeral these days? Like including your costs, including the funeral director, like the whole thing, like what can most people, again, I say normal kind of funeral. I know it probably varies greatly, but like, is there a kind of standard that people can kind of, that's what we're kind of expecting? Oh, it really varies. It, it's, um, it depends on the, the funeral director that you go with. And once again, this is certainly not my, my point of expertise. So I hesitate to put a dollar value on it. So it could range from sort of between five and $10,000 um, up from there, I, I think. Um, but, and you could, depending on who you, where you do the funeral, it can, and can cost less than that as well. But um, just depends. It's quite varied. Community funerals are something that's, that's becoming, more, uh, you know, that people's awareness are becoming uh, becoming more aware of, of, of the option for community funerals as well. That's a bit of a movement that's growing in in the country. Um, so that's that's certainly something that 
that people might want to find out more about as well. Um, but yeah, it can it can vary tremendously from state to state between funeral director and funeral director. Um, and then there's different costs between cremation and burial and those things. So there's quite a few moving parts that go into that. Um, so yeah, what I guess the advice I'd probably give to people um, with that is just make sure that you're comfortable with the people that are that you're having involved in in the funeral that you're in that you're involved with with um with a loved one or for yourself if it, if it's down the track and and if you've got that level of trust and comfort in the funeral director that's going to be where it all starts from Perfect. um yeah sounds good um i always like having uh the guests from the previous um podcast ask a question for the next guest and so last week's guests wanted to ask and it's quite a broad question so feel free to kind of go wherever your head kind of goes from um what is your earliest memory of food and he kind of really wanted to say that could have been a book you read a tv show you saw or a meal that your great grandmother cooked and like what's what's the first thing that comes to mind of your first memory of food wow that is an amazing question um certainly not something i've thought about before so (laughs) i would probably have to say don't, I don't remember the baby food stage, thankfully, or the breastfeeding <laughs> stage either. So that's um that's probably a good thing. Um, just shout out to mum there, by the way. Uh, and um, I, I've always I've always been a been a big eater, and I love all all food generally. Um, oh, that's that's really tough, Adam. Um, can I can I jump in with one that comes to mind for me, just to kind of if you want to kind please. of have a little thought? Yeah, is just. It's only because, and I think it's because of my nan and I shared with you and said my nan only passed recently. I am a big memory of mine and it really stands vivid in my mind at the moment, just purely because of, I guess, circumstances in life in that my nan, we used to go to her house all the time for um, every single year for years um, over the long, the Queen's birthday long weekend. And we would always get to sit in her lounge room on the floor to have dinner as kids, which was never done in my household. We were always at a a dining table or kitchen table or something like that. And so it was always this fun thing. Oh, we get to eat food on the floor and, you know, Nana's so great. This is amazing. And my Nana this particular night cooked us spaghetti bolognese. And I distinctly remember her saying, kids, do not spill any because it'll go on the floor and it'll stay in the carpet. I'm like, yeah, man, no worries. Definitely you won't. I can remember walking the plate of spaghetti bolognese into the lounge room and it slipped off the plate. The whole bowl of spaghetti fell off the plate and splattered on the floor. <laughs> and I have never seen my Nana angry in my life. But that moment in time, I swear... If she could have murdered me on that day, she would have. Because I remember her yelling, bloom. It's like, what have you done? Kind of thing. And so that memory, as I don't know how old I would have been, is just so vivid in my mind at the moment. And that's kind of, again, my first memory that comes to mind of food. I'm sure there's others, but that just stands so vivid in my mind at the moment. This spilling this spaghetti bolognese all over the carpet in my nana and grandpa's house at that time. Sounds like you've got a bit of trauma wound up with that memory. (laughs) I I am very vigilant about not spilling food anymore because it it does just stand. And I'm with my own kids now. It's like, do not spill. I'm so about not spilling food kind of thing. And it probably stems from that moment in my life. 
yeah, you're probably you're getting triggered every every day now if you've got children. That's for sure. <laughs> um, I've just it's 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 triggered my memory there. Actually, it's probably not. I don't know if it's my first memory, but sort of the overwhelming memory of of food growing up was it just made me think how much more I enjoy food now than when I was a kid because Dad just loved all of his meat completely overcooked, <laughs> and he was also a big fan of the mashed potato and pumpkin together. Um, and then then greens like peas or beans out of a can or, and then cooked within an inch of their life until they're almost a sludge. So those sorts of, and that's what my poor mum was, you know, was was asked to cook that stuff all the time. It was very much the the, the diet I think dad had grown up on himself, probably from his own parents. Um, and uh, yeah, so my, my memory of childhood food was overcooked lamb chops, mashed potato and pumpkin together and really soggy canned peas. Um, so yeah, that's, it's not... No, it's not. A, I'm feeling quite queasy actually, just thinking about it. Now. <laughs> um, I cook. I cook my meat a lot better these days. Perfect. Well, a great response, Martin. I appreciate your answer. But um, I always then like to follow up with, um, what's your question for uh, next week's guest? Yeah, I, I think I guess I might keep it on theme with what we've talked about today and go back to that. What's probably the most meaningful question? Um, and that is, what do you think happens when you die, and how does that shape how you conduct yourself? in your life now i'm just trying if you see if you people are watching this i'm just off camera kind of typing very quickly there so i've got what do you think happens when you die and how does that shape yeah how you conduct yourself um in your life yourself in your day-to-day life yeah yeah that sounds beautiful I like it. Well, Luke, um, again, mate, I can't uh, thank you more for your uh, your time. I appreciate everything that, um, as I said, you shared with us today and shone a light on, a, on an industry and a profession that, again, most people don't talk about and probably don't want to talk about. And so, um, as I said, I'm a curious human by nature and I, I, I love having conversations with people from all walks of life, all different professions. And um, this is certainly one that I didn't think I'd be having uh, anytime soon, but I really appreciate that I have. And um, I said, I thank you for your professionalism, but also for what you do and um, how you do comfort people and kind of help people through that really, you know, traumatic, sad, joyous, all those kind of different emotions that people are going through at that point in their life. Yeah. Thanks very much, Adam. Thanks. um, Thanks for your kind words there. And yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Awesome. Well, guys, as I said, the show notes will have everything about Luke that uh, if you do want to reach out to him or kind of any of the organizations that he's spoken about um, as well with regards to the charities, um, if you want to reach out, feel free to click on them. But um, that's been another episode this week of the Let's Just Talk Pod. Let's Just Talk podcast, guys. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Talk to you then. Bye.